Kia ora, I'm Anne O'Brien, Director of the Auckland Writers' Festival, and you're listening to a 2016 festival podcast proudly powered by Spark. Each year, to begin three days of public programming, the festival presents a sellout smorgasbord of stories, eight writers delivering a seven-minute true story, propless and scriptless, this year inspired by the theme Altered States. For the New Zealand listener gala night, True Stories Told Live in 2016, you're going to hear from Chilean-Canadian playwright, actor, memoirist and revolutionary Carmen Aguirre, New Zealand Samoan poet Tusiata Avia, Christchurch raconteur Joe Bennett, Cambridge-educated trade lawyer and rising Zimbabwean writing star Bettina Gapper, erstwhile Midnight Oil frontman and politician Peter Garrett, New York woman of letters Vivian Gornick, the Dutch author of the European sensation The Dinner, Herman Koch, and the incomparable UK writer Jeanette Winterson. To start us off, Carmen Aguirre. Wow. Thanks so much for coming tonight. So, I'm an actor as well as an author. And I'm going to tell you a story about a play that I was in called The Suicide. It was a Canadian adaptation of a Russian play by the same name, and we were touring Mexico with this play. We were in Guanajuato, Mexico, at the International Theatre Festival of Cervantino, and it was opening night. We were at the Cervantes Theatre. It was a sold-out house of about a 1,000 people, and I was very, very nervous as I was waiting in the wings to come on stage. I was nervous not because it was opening night at this major international theatre festival, but because I was hoping that this gorgeous waiter who I had met the day before would show up. So there was one empty seat for him. It was reserved for him, and it was empty. This is because he had told me, you know, I can't really go to your play because I'm working, but I might be able to sneak away without my boss noticing, go to your play, and then sneak back in to the restaurant after the play is over. Anyway, I'm waiting in the wings to come on, and the stagehand keeps checking to see if he's there, and she keeps coming back and telling me he's not here. I'm like, oh, well, I'm kind of crestfallen. The lights go down. I'm about to go onto the stage, and she comes running up to me. She goes, he's here, he's here. He came running down the aisle in his apron, and he just landed in the seat. And I'm like, yes, yes. So I go onto the stage. And by the way, my character is fantastic. Her name is Kiki. And she's like a drag queen. That is really the best way to describe her. She's in six-inch heels, and she's just fabulous. So I'm feeling fantastic about the waiter showing up. I come onto the stage. I'm doing my scene with Lucas. And then all of a sudden, like almost immediately, the stage manager brings all the lights up to 100%. Now, I don't know if you know what that means, but it basically means that you're blind on stage. You can't see anything. Like, it's it's... She brings up the lights, 100%. So I'm like, what the hell is going on? All I know is that the show must go on because it's the theater. So I I keep doing the play with Lucas, and it's a very choreographed scene. I'm like, I'm going to fall off the stage. I'm in six-inch heels. I can't see a thing. I don't know what's going on. The only time you ever, ever, ever stop a show is when the stage manager goes on the microphone from her booth and says, stop the show. So I'm like, okay, I'm going to keep going. Obviously, there's something very wrong. The lights are up. It must be something with the stage. So I'm doing the scene. I'm trying to see if there's glass on the stage. Is there a hole we didn't see? Like, what is happening? I'm staring into Lucas's eyes, trying to see if he's trying to signal me. He's just acting normal. I'm like, okay. So I'm still blinded by this light. Then I notice that Jay, another one of the actors, who's in a white shirt, comes on stage and stands behind Lucas. I'm like, what the hell is Jay doing? He's not supposed to be on stage right now. And he starts mirroring every move that Lucas makes. Now, this is a highly choreographed scene. I'm like, how does Jay even know all these, all this blocking? This is amazing. He's doing everything that Lucas is doing. Again, blinded by the light, Jay's behind him. I'm like, what is happening? Clearly, the stage manager has told Jay to come on stage to keep us safe. Safe from what? I don't know. Now I'm getting super nervous because there's this huge table, wooden table on the stage, and me and Lucas are supposed to get on this table. I'm in six-inch heels and this huge dress. I'm supposed to walk backwards on the table. He's supposed to kind of get on top of me. I have to get off the table, do a spin, and then we have to keep going. I'm like, clearly, I'm going to fall 
fall. I'm going to kill myself. I can't see anything. Everything's fine. We do the table scene. I'm no longer thinking about the waiter. I mean, I am in the sense that I don't want to kill myself in front of him. That would be very humiliating because, you know, I'm hoping to kind of get it on with him later that night. The point is that we get through the scene, and I'm like, okay, I have no clue what's happening. I get off the stage. Camille is waiting to go on. She's another actor. I'm about to say to her, what the hell is happening? I look across the wings, and I see Jay in the wings. He's not on stage. I'm like, what? I don't get it. So I, I look on stage again, and I see that the man with the white shirt is still there, He's still behind Lucas, doing everything that Lucas does, but he doesn't have a face. I can't see his face. And then I notice that the light is actually coming from him. It's not coming from the lighting. It's coming from him. That's when I go, oh, it's a ghost. There's a ghost on stage. He's come out to play, and he's going to play with us all night, and I just hope he doesn't kill us. So I say to Camille, do you see the ghost? I describe everything, and she looks at me, and she goes, you, you have obviously lost your mind. You're insane. I can't see a thing. So then I decide that the reason why she can't see it and I can't, and I can see it is because I've developed this sixth sense. When I was in the Chilean resistance fighting against Pinochet's dictatorship, and I was always terrified that the secret police would pick me up and torture me and dispose of me. So I had this radar going all the time. Every time I entered a room, I knew where all the exits were. I would read people in the room, informer, 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 comrade, possible helper, secret police member, got to get out of here. So I thought, this is why I can see the ghost, because I've developed this sixth sense. Anyway, the night is over. I tell the entire cast about the ghost, who continues to be there all night, mirroring everything Lucas does, blinding me. Thank God I don't fall off the stage. And they say, we have no clue what you're talking about. You have obviously lost your mind. Meanwhile, the waiter has had to dash up the aisle as soon as the play is over, and he's had to work till 6 in the morning so I don't get it on with him. Day two. We are on stage. We're on stage. The ghost is nowhere to be seen. I'm like, oh, okay, I guess it's an opening night ghost. It's all right. That's fine. Camille comes off the stage, and she's green, and she goes, oh, my God, Carmen. And she tells me the whole story of what happened to me the night before. She's like, can you see it? It's there right now. He's mirroring everything that Lucas is doing. I'm like, oh, my God, I can't see it. So clearly this ghost likes to play with different people on different nights. She's like, I'm terrified. I have to go up the ladder. The ladder has to swing. I have to come down. I can't see. I'm like, well, he didn't kill me, so he probably won't kill you. I think it's fine. I think it's, it's a good ghost. Nobody else in the cast can see this ghost. At the end of the night, I go up to one of the technicians and I tell him the entire story. And he starts chuckling and he goes, oh, yeah, that's Jose. And we're like, Jose, oh, yeah, he's a technician. You know, one day he was hanging a light way, way, way up there, just above the stage, and he fell to his death, right center stage, skull split open, brains everywhere. And we think it was actually a suicide. And when we saw you rehearsing, we thought, oh, Jose is going to come out and play because the play is called The Suicide, and he's going to play with Lucas because Lucas is the guy who's supposed to be committing suicide. The ghost did not come out and play again, I guess because I outed him, and I did get it on with the waiter that night, and my time is up, so I'm not going to tell you what happened with the waiter. Thank you. Um, 1979. Uh, I was at university, just finishing up at university last few weeks, done my final exam, serious drinking to do. Had no idea where to go in the world and what to do, and uh, only one career decision had been made. Under no circumstances would I teach for a living. I had seen teachers, we'd all seen teachers, you know, the... <laughs> Stooping, bent spines and nicotine-stained moustaches, you know, the, the halitosis that could kill gorse. You know. God, and the male teachers weren't much better. Um, <laughs> and I was sitting in a bar one day, and Steve Horrocks, fat Steve Horrocks, came up to me and said, uh, Joe, there's a job for you in a paper. And I went, what's this? And, and it was a little small ad in the Daily Telegraph. It's in England. And it said, English graduates wanted to teach English in Spain. And I said, Horro, thank you very much, very considerate of you, but uh, I don't speak Spanish, I don't want to go to Spain, and I'm never going to bloody teach. He said, fine, let's have a beer, we had a beer. A week later, 
I got a letter shortlisting me for the job. <laughs> Horror would even cut my mugshot out of the rugby team photograph. And I was invited to an interview in London. And, um, and I wanted to go down to London for a 21st birthday party. And it was sort of standard practice to go to interviews for jobs you didn't want, hitch there, claim the travel fare, and that gave you drinking money for the weekend. And so that's what I did. I went down to this little hotel in Marylebone, hitched down to London, met this scrawny little bearded man in a hotel room. And his first question, his interview ostensibly for a teaching job in Spain, was, do you play rugby? And I said, yes. Um, I mean, I did play rugby. I was never very good at rugby. Um, there was something wrong with my back. It had a big yellow streak down it. You know. <laughs> but you don't admit that sort of stuff at 22. And I said, yeah. He said, what position do you play? And I, I'd say, I'm, I'm a halfback, fullback, um, fly, uh, scrum half. And uh, he, said, um, he said, I play first five for Spain. Oh, you he didn't laugh. Scrawny little bugger. I said, really? And I think he could sense my tone. And, and he said, yeah, they're no good but I'm an international. And I said, bloody hell. He said, can you pass? I said, of course I can pass. I'm, you know, and, uh, he said, pass me the, the paperweight. And there was a glass paperweight on the desk and I passed it to him. He said, yeah, you're all right. You could probably be an international too. <laughs> so I took the job. I, I'm not joking. I took the job, but I wanted to be an international rugby player. And so two months later, I set off into adulthood. Got a bus from London, Victoria to Barcelona, 36 hour journey. Sitting behind me were three extras, elderly old, Extras from Coronation Street, Ethel, Madge, and Sissy, who talked all night about Spain. Oh, they didn't like Spain. I didn't know why they were going. I mean, the food was so greasy, it's vile, you know. All bloody night, no sleep, all night. Ethel, Madge, and Sissy going, got to, I could say, all I could say in Spanish was yes, no, and una paloma blanca. And um, got to uh, Barcelona railway station, bought a ticket to Zaragoza where this job was. I just got this little typed letter of appointment. Got on this, I didn't know how far it was to Zaragoza, and I got on there, and there were four types of train in Spain. There was Talgo, which was a reasonably express one. There was Espresso, which stopped at the main stations. There was Rapido, which stopped at every station. And then there was Tren, which stopped for dead dogs in case they wanted to get on. I got a Tren. It was 38 degrees, and it was 300 kilometers, and the babies were wailing. You know, and, uh, uh, and I hadn't had any sleep for 36 hours. Got finally, every, every dead dog we stopped by, I would tap the person next to me and go, that I got, no, no, no. Got there about 10 o'clock at night. All I got was a little letter, telephone number on it. Went to payphone, dialed the payphone, dialed the number, and got this incomprehensible Spaniard on the phone. Put the phone down, dialed again. Got an angry, obviously the same incomprehensible Spaniard on a phone, dialed again. No, the uh, phone was off the hook. And, uh, and then it dawned on me. This was a hoax. I had never applied for this job. It was transparent. I'd been flattered about my hopeless rugby. There'd been no discussion of teaching. The letter I'd got of appointment was hopelessly ill-typed. Oh, well done, Horro, I said to myself. Ha, ha. I had about 10 quid in my pocket. I thought, oh, fuck this. And I thought, what do I do? I don't know. It was about midnight. Sleep. Lay down, very tired. Was woken up by a smell. And foul smell. And, and opened my eyes, and there were about... Six Goya faces, all with separating sores, all within inches of mine. Foul breath all over me, all staring at me. And they scattered into the recesses of the railway station. And these were the, the drunks and the, and the hobos of, of Zaragoza who went into the railway station to keep warm at night. But they had, I, I, hard to believe, but I had vivid red hair in those days. I was visible from space. And, they, and the Spaniards, there are no redheads in Spain. There are no, they used to call me El Rubio, the blonde one. There is no word for redhead in Spanish. And, um, and anyway, so I was feeling really relaxed. And, um, and then I heard this voice go, Elizabeth, Elizabeth. And I looked around, and there was this old boy, 70 years old, in a, in a tweed suit, just saying Elizabeth down the payphone and then putting it back up. He didn't put any money. I went, oh, I said, excuse me, mate, you know, I'm just a bit buggered. Um, you obviously English, eh? He said, yeah, yes, old boy, yes, old boy. And, I said, could we just chat for a bit? And he was brilliant. He was a professional gambler. This is 1979 in the days before Shane Warne. And, 
And his professional poker player, whenever he won some money, he went hitchhiking around Europe, commandeered lifts with his umbrella in his bag. He showed me in his bag, he got a set, spare set of underwear, a spare shirt, and a metal detector. And his hobby was looking for Roman coins at old sites. And I said, do you find many? He said, I've never found one. But he loved doing it. And, and he said, you look knackered. You have a sleep, old boy. I'll stand guard. You'll be okay. And I went to sleep. When I woke up, he was fast asleep on top of me. That was fine. Five in the morning, the cafe opened, he bought me a big brandy and an omelette, and he said, you'll be fine. And he walked off down towards the rising sun with his umbrella tapping, going to, he didn't know where. And, um, and that was it, and he walked out of my life, and I've always remembered him. And about ten minutes later, I found someone who spoke French, I spoke reasonable French, and it transpired they'd changed the prefix and local telephone numbers, and the job did exist, <laughs> which has pissed you off. And I spent the next 15 years teaching and loved it. <laughs> Hope you enjoy the festival. Cheers. Good evening, and thank you so much for coming in such frighteningly large numbers. <laughs> I'm afraid I'm going to bum you out a little bit after that last story, because I'm going to tell you the story of a breakup. Uh, the story of five days that changed my life. And I'm really not exaggerating. I was a law student at the University of Zimbabwe. I was in my second year. Everything was going great. I was away from home as a young adult, discovering the mind-expanding world of law, learning new things, meeting amazing people, like my boyfriend, he was beautiful. I mean, he was tall, he was good-looking. He drove a little old Datsun 120Y. <laughs> he, was at a, he had been at a school called St. George's, and we called those boys the saints. So I had my saint, I was top of the class, everything was amazing. And then one morning, my saint took me outside and sat me down on the lawn of the law faculty and said, babe, we need to talk. And I knew from movies what that meant. I'd never had a boyfriend before, but I knew what we need to talk meant. And I said, are you breaking up with me? Very cheerfully. And he said, yes, it's just not working for me. But there's no one else. I promise you, there is no one else. It's just not working for me, but there's no one else. I have to say I was a little dazed, but if there was a consolation, it was that there was no one else. That very night, I think you can guess what's coming. <laughs> I saw the little Datsun 120Y, light green. I even remember the license plate. I'm not going to say it because I want to protect the guilty. <laughs> I saw it parked outside Swinton, our hall of residence. He had come to pick another girl for a date. I'm sorry to say, I don't actually quite remember what happened over the next uh, 24 hours. But I do know that the next day at lunch, I was overheard making a, what I thought was a scientific inquiry into how many disprin the human body would actually need in order to dispose of oneself. And Anna, the official subwarden who sat at the table, took this as a threat of suicide. And it didn't help that later that day, I went to the students' union bar where I proceeded to get absolutely trashed on vodka. In those days, I was a Marxist-Leninist. And in fact, the book I'd been reading when my saint broke up with me was The Origins of the Family, Private Property and the State by Marx and Engels. So because I was a Marxist-Leninist, my drink of choice naturally was vodka. <laughs> so after four or five glasses of vodka, this is not meant to be a funny story. <laughs> uh, after four or five glasses of vodka, I went to the uh, law faculty because I remembered, aha, uh -huh, I had a company law exam. <laughs> so I went barging in, high as a kite, I was about 10 minutes late, and Julie Stewart, our wonderful lecturer, she'd seen me crying, and so she knew that something was wrong, so she tried to stop me from going in, but I was unstoppable. 
and I was ranting and raving, I am going to be a Rhodes Scholar. I am going to Oxford. I am going to do international law. I am going to bring peace to the Middle East with these two hands. And it all starts right here in this room, in this exam. You can't stop me writing this company law. It is my right. I'm a law student. I know my rights. <laughs> After about 10 minutes, they managed to bundle me out. And at that time, before we had our 92-year-old president, please cheer for us, Zimbabwe was a functioning country. And all sorts of you know, processes actually worked. So the university machinery was activated. My parents were called in Bulawayo, the second city where, where we lived. And I was sectioned in the annex, which is the mental hospital at uh, Parinyatwa Hospital. And I think that my doctor, the psychiatrist, actually just wanted to see whether I was just drunk or whether something really was happening. But in those three days that I spent at the annex, I learned some amazing things about myself, and I learned some amazing things about other people. I met some wonderful people whom I would later call Ezekiel and Emilia and Estelle and Sonia. Ezekiel was a security guard who liked to draw, and he drew a beautiful picture of the Taj Mahal from a, from a, from a, from a picture. And Emilia, who was a Catholic nun, tore it up. And Sonia was the resident white of the annex. And she used to wear her annex towel around her head like a turban. She was very imperial. Estella was young and beautiful, mixed race, and she had a very loud laugh, and she also had an imaginary pregnancy. I never actually found out why they were in the annex. I was only there for a short time. And initially, I buried myself in my marks and angles. I didn't want to take part in anything. But by the time I left, I had started sharing the toast with all the other, with everyone else. I was singing with Ezekiel, and I was watching the bus go past because the annex was on Second Street Extension, which was the road leading to the university. So I could see through the window scenes from my old life, the bus going to the university, scenes from my suspended life. I did go back to university three days later. And of course, I became the butt of jokes. And to be fair, the jokes were actually very funny. And, and they were very clever. They involved references to the Mental Health Act and being a fit and proper person. I would have hated to be the butt of bad jokes. <laughs> but what that annex experience did for me was that it m made me abandon a dream I'd long held. I wanted to be the only female representative on the Student Representative Council. But because Zimbabwe is not a society that is exactly embracive of mental illness, I knew that any election campaign I launched would be the butt of jokes. So I had to abandon that dream. But I found another dream. I decided I was going to beat all those bastards who laughed at me. I was going to come first in class, and I did. I decided I was going to have a career in international law in Geneva, and I did. And I also, in the annex, I came to write my very first short story. I only finished it 15 years later. <laughs> but when I did finish it, I called it the Annex Shuffle, and it's one of the stories in my first book. But more than anything, my annex experience gave me a fondness for people that I call the fragile, the misfit, the lost, the kind of people that I write about. And I have another ex-boyfriend. Don't worry, time is up. It's not going to be a seven-minute story. But he's, he's my favorite ex-boyfriend because he gave me my wonderful son, who's now 12. And he, he had this nickname for me, which is Chanda Gwinira. It's a Shona word meaning, what I have determined on shall happen. And I always used to say to him, it's not so much that I am particularly determined or that I'm good at planning. It's simply that being at the annex taught me something very important. If one dream dies, I'm going to dream a, another dream, and I'm going to dream it bigger. Thank you very much. Uh, Kior, good day. 
After more than 25 years as a touring musician uh, and a conservation activist, uh, I took uh, a leap of faith and political conviction and joined the Australian Labor Party and was subsequently elected uh, as a Member of Parliament in 2004. <laughs> Prior to that time, I'd been a troubadour, uh, and with my colleagues, we were vagabonds of the road. I believe we deafened people in the glue pot not far from here and ended up in a big tent not that far from here either. And this wayward, wonderful life of singing and staying up late and pretty much doing what you wanted to do whenever you wanted to do it, as long as you got on stage that night, was overnight transformed into the regularity of being a member of parliament. Uh, the stage uh, where I'd hung out before became the shopping centre where I hung out now, engaging with my constituents as we set up our office and me, a non-factionalised member of the Labor Party, saying with all seriousness to my staff, we'll be like the church on the hill is meant to be, open to all comers, regardless of their political persuasions, their beliefs, their prejudices or their views. And so a constant stream of people complaining, placarding, supporting, criticising uh, and generally engaging with us became my world. And it was the kind of world that I loved because the public life that I was always urging others to do better, I suddenly found myself trying to do at least half well. And that, of course, is Altered State 1. Altered State 2, uh, the Labor Party under a new leader, Kevin Rudd, is elected into government. And I am appointed as the Minister for Environment, and it has to be said the arts. Now, you can prepare your policies as you get ready, if you think you might uh, take office, but nothing prepares you for government itself. The tempo lifts, the work levels increase, the regularity and predictability that you have to provide for others of course, becomes a much bigger part of what you're doing, especially if you're a minister. And there are lots of yes minister moments along the way. Those policies were important, though. Sure, you've got a government department, you've got a chief of staff for the first time who is there at your beck and call. Uh, you go to cabinet meetings, you sit around and talk about important things like the budgets. But mainly you're there because you're going to do things that the people you defeated would never have done. And you want to get on and do them as quickly as you can. And one quick example, of course, the campaign against the Japanese killing whales in the southern oceans around our two countries in the name of science, something which obsessed and took up much of my time as an environment minister for those years. But uh, it has to be said, as in modern politics, so it was for us, waters were choppy, you lose some skin along the way. Uh, and in that choppiness, it was determined that that leader should be replaced by another leader. Uh, that leader, uh, Julie Gillard, the first woman Prime Minister in Australia, Julie elected and appointed me uh, as the Minister for Education and handed me a big bunch of work to do because we had 9,000 schools and a lot of kids in a country of 22 million people who weren't doing that well in education and the reform idea was a simple one, provide them with a good structure some more resources, help teachers and help kids in each one of those 9,000 schools be the best that they can. And, of course, the schools want to invite the education minister to come and be at their speech night or uh, their evening's entertainment or their graduation ceremonies and the 15 minutes becomes 10 minutes and the chief of staff becomes a chief of staff and a deputy chief of staff. And it gets more and more busy and you get greyer and greyer and you get to know your staff better than you know your own family. But the adrenaline is pumping. And in our case, it was pumping in a big way because we had a major piece of reform that we wanted to get through the parliament in the time that was left for us. Meanwhile, of course, as some of you will know, who are students of Australian political history, uh, the vanquished leader uh, determined that he would try and come back and take what he thought to be his rightful place. Uh, we'd worked hard. And we'd worked hard because we believed in what we were doing. Uh, in doing that, uh, my life had changed completely from what I was doing before. But I welcomed that change. Uh, I really appreciated that opportunity. And suddenly, as we were starting to get the legislation for the new education reforms into the parliament, get them through the House of Representatives and the Senate, 
The spectre of Mr Rudd's leadership challenge was on the horizon and on the very day that the legislation was travelling through the parliament, he launched his challenge. Altered state number three. A period of panic, uh, fatigue. Uh, we got the legislation through. Rudd became Labor leader. Resignation and despair. I resigned. Uh, I said I wouldn't serve under him. I was loyal uh, to Mrs Gillard. My staff pack up their boxes and within 48 hours they are out of the building. The paper shredders have melted down. Uh, the halls of Parliament in Canberra have fallen quiet as I exit the building and turn the lights off in my ministerial office as I walk out to head towards home. I get home to find that my wife, unfortunately, has had to travel overseas to um, visit a sick relative. Um, I've suddenly gone in the Australian vernacular from being a rooster to a feather duster. Uh, my phone has fallen almost silent, which is unusual for someone in this position. A couple of texts from friends to say, are you okay, or WTF, uh, <laughs> and that was about it. And I sat there uh, for a day in the silence as the hubbub and the din of the parliament, sort of, and all the noise and the media carry on, just sort of quietly faded uh, into the ground around me, and I could hear currawongs and smell the eucalypts again. And there's a knock on the door, and it's a special delivery. Oh, Mr. Garrett, I said, yeah, that's me. I'm still here. Uh, I've come to deliver you this letter. No, I get the letter. Commonwealth of Australia, familiar enough. Open up the letter. Dear Mr. Garrett, Department of Education, uh, now that you are no longer our minister, could you please return your phone, your car, your computer, <laughs> the printers that you've got at two residences, your one in Sydney and your residence in Canberra, and the like. Democracy still in action. Uh, altered state um, number four. I started to write about it and put it down uh, in my memoirs, which is partly why uh, I'm here tonight. Uh, and in doing that, I had a chance to reflect on what it meant to go from one um, part of living, which was very much intuitive, sometimes impulsive, occasionally creative, to another which was very directed. Um, very process-driven, and ultimately one which was focused on doing something for everybody else. I ended up writing songs at the end of that process, so that was the final altered state in my life. I consider myself very lucky to experience so many altered states in a short 10 years. Have a great festival. Kia ora katoa, katoa, talo falawa, warm Pacific greetings to you all. I want to take my heels off because um, I don't feel dwarfed by Peter Garrett. I can be as short as I like. In the green room, we were talking about our levels of nervousness, and I said to Peter, do you feel nervous? He said, no. Like, awesome. <laughs> so... So I was talking to my friend Selena the other day about what I should talk about tonight. I was angsting, actually. Um, and because the first thing that came to my mind, altered states, maybe a story about um, my recreational drug taking in my 20s. <laughs> nah, I didn't think that would be the thing. And she said to me, why don't you tell them about your brain tumour. And I thought, personal? Yeah, 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 that's what I'll talk about. So, a bit of backstory. About 20 years ago, I had my first epileptic seizure, and it was like the big frothing at the mouth, falling on the floor, eyes rolling to the back of your head, impersonation of that girl on the exorcist kind of seizure. Luckily for me and everyone around me, I take drugs now, so those are suppressed. But what the medication doesn't suppress are the auras that I still have. And one of the aspects of these auras is an experience called jamais vu. Now, jamais vu means never seen. And it's the opposite 
of deja vu, which means seen before. And we've all had that experience, right, of deja vu, that uncanny feeling that comes over us, that we have been in this moment before, we have lived this very moment before. So my experience is the inverse of that. I have a sudden kind of matrix-like shift in my reality and everything becomes intensely unfamiliar and surreal, just kind of like it feels right now. And I don't recognize where I am, even if I'm in my own bedroom. And I don't recognize who I'm with, even if it's my eight-year-old daughter. And sometimes I'm even unfamiliar to myself. And I have a lot of these. In the last 10 days, I've counted 19. And I don't know if that's because of this. I'm not blaming you guys or anything. (laughs) But um, I experience these altered states a lot. So another little bit of backstory. In 2010, I had an MRI, like lots of epileptics do, and discovered, was told that I had this cherry-shaped, sized tumour in my brain. Now, quite apart from the effect that that has on you, you can imagine, right, and on your family, and I don't have time to talk about that next year, I'll tell you that story. Um... What's really fascinating to me is where that cherry is. It hangs from a stalk from my brain and it sits in a space. And that space abuts the pineal gland. Now many of you will know that the pineal gland is also known as the third eye. And some believe the pineal gland, the third eye, to be the connection between spiritual consciousness and the brain. Descartes called it the principal seat of the soul. I looked that up. And so to see the seat of my soul on an MRI and to see this cherry right next to it, brought my attention to it, brought my attention to my mortality in a way that I never had before. So how do all these things link up? This epilepsy, this jemevu, this cherry, this seat of the soul. You know, for the purposes of this talk, I wish I could weave them together and make you a nice pattern with a bow and go, there you go. But... It doesn't really work like that. For me, I'm still groping through the dark, trying to find the connections because I have a strong feeling that there's a connection. And I have a strong feeling that it's paralleled somehow with writing, with the way that I write. And I've often thought of writing as a kind of channeling when I contact the spirits, or more like the spirits, or Aitu in the Samoan language, contact me, and I'm able to transcribe sometimes word for word what they say, and then look and go, oh. But to be honest, I've really only had that experience a very small handful of times. Most of the time, it's just this weird sensation like, a bit of silver lame projected just above my head, about here. And that shimmery feeling that gives me a few words or an image. And then I just have to make it up from there. And talking about making it up from there, I'm looking for my ending. (laughs) And I don't have one. I don't have an ending, so I'm going to leave you with the mystery, (laughs) and maybe tonight in my hotel room, the Aetul 
the spirit will tap me on the shoulder. Or maybe you, as you're driving home in your car, please, can you Facebook me and let me know <laughs> what the ending is. I love it. Um, the, the last storyteller it was a perfect lead-in to um, my own little story, uh, Altered States. Um, Shakespeare described sexual infatuation um, as follows. The gods throw moon dust in your eyes, and when you wake up, if you're lucky, it's not a donkey. <laughs> so, I liken sexual infatuation to that story. <laughs> and I would like to tell you a little story about my own um, experience of such. I once married a man who, during his courtship of me, gave off so many mixed signals that years after our divorce, I marveled at that benighted girl, me, who accepted uh, such alarming uh, circumstances uh, <laughs> for so long a period of time. The willed blindness uh, that, uh, that I experienced at the time was by way of being an altered state. So that, for instance, uh, during our courtship, when we first met, I'll call him Daniel. Daniel told me three things. First, he told me that he'd been married and was divorced. Second, he told me that his parents lived abroad. Third, he told me that he had been an alcoholic uh, and no longer was. So I discovered, even before we tie the knot, that uh, he'd been married three times, not once, uh, that his parents lived in Kansas City and not in Europe. And then every now and then he would astonish me by belting down a drink. Years later, my mother would say, he's an alcoholic. And I'd say, Ma, an ex-alcoholic. And she'd say, I don't care what kind of alcoholic. <laughs> and so he was. But I was besotted. And with every single uh, indication of um, difficulty, of complexity, I would say, sweetheart. When I learned that he was, had been married more times than once, I said, sweetheart. When I learned that, he, um, that his parents lived in Kansas City, again, I said, sweetheart. And the third time around, the same. Why? Because I was besotted. I was in that classic altered state, which meant we were like a pair of characters in a Chekhov play, like Natasha and the doctor. We walked and talked for hours and hours and hours, and the conversation was erotic, not in content, but in, um, in effect. It was actually in this relationship, I was the beloved and he the lover so that it was I who talked for hours and hours, and he would say, beautiful girl, you are life itself. And then he would give me back myself, give me back what I had said to him, twice as brilliant as anything that I could have said. And I'd say, take me to bed. And <laughs> this went on and on and on. And it was peculiar, because my husband was actually something of a sociopath. He. Um, <laughs> <laughs> when we were courting, he was in his last year of graduate school. His sixth year, he told me, is in actuality his tenth year. So, okay, he's in his last year of graduate school, and we have agreed that as soon as he graduates, we're going to get married uh, and, and leave town and start another life in another place. Uh, during that year, he often seemed to study peculiarly. Uh, in other words, one, not in other words, in these words, he would often say, um, we can't have dinner tonight because I have to study. And then late in the afternoon, he'd show up at my place, and I'd say, what are you doing here? And he'd say, ah, I studied enough. And I would think to myself, this is a peculiar way of studying, and I couldn't believe that he would get through the, the course and actually graduate. But the end of the year came, and he announced to me that he was uh, that he had graduated, that he, he had fulfilled uh, the course. And I said, oh, wonderful. Graduation ceremony, and then we're off. And he said, no, no, let's dispense with the ceremony. Let's just get out of town. 
Then I said, can I see your diploma? He said, oh, they're sending it on. Well, you can fill in the rest, right? <laughs> Nevertheless, I stayed uh, with him for uh, a good four years. And why was that? Because every single thing uh, that I've told you now failed to register in an important way. I could not take it in. It was something like what was described before, a surreal state, a state in which you are given information you are unable to process. No one has ever gotten to the bottom of this mystery, but it is, it is there every, almost every minute of everybody's life that you take in an experience which you're not really taking in, uh, that it, its, its power is peculiarly that of the surreal experience. Um, one, of the most famous, um, one of the most famous examples of an altered state in, in this, and by the way, always when we speak of altered states, we always mean an alteration of the senses. We hardly ever mean an alteration of the power of reasoning. It's, it is the, what, we, what you call uh, the feeling intelligence at work, which refuses to work, which for one reason or other, the switches get confused. A great example of this was Thomas de Quincey, who was a famous op English opium eater. When de Quincey started to take opium, he was 18 years old, he loved it because, he said, it did not do what alcohol did, which was to confuse the senses. He said what, what, um, what opium did was to clarify his senses, just as I thought everything that my husband did was clarifying my senses, but in fact was confusing my senses. De Quincey took opium long enough to understand that it was his senses that were absolutely confused. But for the longest time, he acted on the premise that his intellect was being clarified. By the end of his life, he had lunatic uh, um, nightmares and was unable to sleep and got no, no relief from what he thought of as his clarified senses. Well, the same thing happened to me. One morning, <laughs> I woke up and turned around and looked at the man in bed with me and said, it is a donkey. <laughs> Thank you. Hello, good night. Um, I'm going to tell a story, well, I'm going to start this story um, in a moment in my life when I Still, I think it's the most happy period in the life of a writer when he's very young and he still doesn't know that he's a writer. Um, which is when you're about from 5 to 15 years old. And I remember always that I would love to tell stories. So to give an example, when I was up to about 9 or 10 years old, I came home from grammar school, from primary school, and then my parents at the table, at the dinner table, asked this classical question, how was school today? And I said, well, yes, it was okay, it was fine. What, we, what did you do? Well, I said, well, we did this, and then we did that, and I thought, well, really, how boring a school day actually is when you think about it. So without... Uh, giving it too much uh, thought, I, after a while, I started to make up things that happened at school. <laughs> so the story I started with was that there was, um, there was a dispute, some kind of uh, uh, fight between two teachers, and they, we actually, as uh, children, as students, were taking sides for one teacher. One was a dictatorial teacher, and the other was a more revolutionary teacher. Well, whatever you can make up when you're uh, eight to nine years old. So I told them, well, uh, you know what happened today? Uh, they stormed the classroom of this very nasty teacher, and uh, they destroyed some of his tables. And uh, we went back, and then they hit back when we were, were on the playground. And... Um, I actually realized at the first like installment of this uh, story, I looked at my parents and I thought, well, they know, you know, it's, they will say, this is Herman again. He's, you know, is in his dreams. He's fantasizing. 
but I actually could see in their faces that they believed me. <laughs> and I, I actually couldn't believe that they believed me, but then I thought, well, I take it a little step further. So I said, now we have, we have uh, armies and we have, we have uh, generals and one of my best friends, he's the general. I'm the personal assistant of the general. I didn't want to be the general, you know, because my parents would never believe. <laughs> it wouldn't be, have been credible that I would have been the general. So the assistants, I still feel like the assistant of the general in my life today. Anyway, I started to, to uh, uh, expand this uh, story with, with generals and lieutenants and with armies. But then one day, this very good friend of mine, who actually was the general, he came home to eat. Well, at lunchtime, I brought him home. And then my mother said, he looked, looked him up and down, and, and she said, so, you're the general. And of course, my friends didn't know anything about <laughs> this whole uh, thing I was making up at home. So uh, I said, the, uh, the general, he said to me, sorry, uh, miss, I didn't, I, I didn't understand what you mean. And I said, well, quickly, uh, let's, go, let's go to my room, I said to my friend. And then my, my friend asked me, well, what was that all about? And I said, don't pay too much attention. My mother is sometimes a bit disturbed. She, <laughs> she doesn't. So that was the first uh, story I, I remember. Another one is uh, because it goes. This was on a on a Montessori school. I won't bore bore you with uh, how actually I don't know how widespread Montessori is in New Zealand. Um, anyway, I, I follow followed it uh, on pri in primary school and in uh, high school until I was expelled. Um, expelled in the third uh, third grade. Um, I'm sure now that I see how many minutes I get, we won't get to the expel, uh, <laughs> the reason for my being being uh, expelled. But actually, I followed this Montessori uh, education, and I'm actually very grateful that I can read and write. At one point, they saw me as a kind of a, 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 a problem case. I won't get into this, how much I was a problem case, but uh, because there's no time. And uh, anyway, at one time, when I was about 14 or 15 years old, they told me, they told my parents, they told me that I should, should see the school psychologist. So, okay, I thought, well, school psychologists, okay, I had some trouble at home in the, in the meantime, where my parents weren't having that good of a marriage and everything. So I, I went to the school psychologist. I told him everything. He was a very nice man. I told him, this is bothering me, this is bothering me. And so after the first session, he said, well, Herman, you decide, you decide, you call me up in a week and... Uh, if you want to make another appointment, you call me in a week or 10 days and we make another appointment. I thought, well, I like this man. And I, I felt kind of relieved of uh, talking about my, my personal uh, disturbances and fantasies and problems and everything. So I called Ringback at the, it was at an institute outside of the school and I got a secretary on the phone. He said, I want to make an appointment with psychologists, so and so. He said, didn't you hear? I said, what? This, uh, doctor, he died a week ago. I said, a week ago? But I saw him a week ago. No, he died the day after. <laughs> so I told him, like, for three hours, my whole life, everything, uh, my secrets. Uh, um, later on, I, I wrote, I wrote an, a novel uh, about this episode. And I actually thought maybe this psychologist had succumbed... Uh, <laughs> beneath the weight of uh, what I told him. I said, one thing is certain that he took my whole life, uh, he, my whole life, all my secrets, he took them into, into his grave. Uh, but actually, I, I liked him. And the funny thing about this whole story is that uh, nobody, not the school, not the Montessori school, which didn't pay too much attention to its uh, students anyway, neither my parents nor myself thought this boy has called to make a second appointment with a psychologist. Uh, maybe he should get another psychologist. No, 
Nobody did this. It was my only visit to a psychologist in my life. And that's why I'm here today now, I think. Thank you very much. Hello. It says time up. I haven't even started. No. It's great to be here. You know, writing itself is an altered state. Reading is an altered state. You know, we talk about being moved by a book, don't we? And that's kinetic. If you're moved by something, you're not in the same place anymore. It's the polar opposite of the armchair experience. And books and writing are the things that have altered my life, shaped my life, that on my life. You know, I was adopted child and I was brought up by an evangelical family, very religious. My mother wanted me to be a missionary. She was a flamboyant depressive, my mother. You know, she kept her, you know those kinds, she kept a revolver in the duster drawer and she kept the bullets in a tin of polish. Uh, she'd, she'd had the, the gun in the war in World War II and she just never gave it back. You know, the whole place was just full of weaponry at that time. Nobody knows what happened to all this stuff, but she had hers. And when things were bad, she'd take it out and just put it on the table. Uh, <laughs> once she did shoot it through the window. But my mother read the Bible to us every day. The Old Testament mainly, because she liked, she liked all the killing and the murder. But, so we were soaked in language, but we weren't allowed to read anything else. Books were banned unless they were about the Bible. And when I asked her why this was, she said, the trouble with a book is that you never know what's in it till it's too late. <laughs> and she was right, but I thought, too late for what? And I began to wonder what was in these things, these fabulous forbidden things called books. Because although the, there were only six books in our house, we, we lived in a world of print because she used to write notices out and stick them up everywhere. So under the coat peg, it said, think of God, not the dog. <laughs> and over the oven, there was a big sign that said, man shall not live by bread alone. And if you went down to the outside toilet, which we had, I don't know if it's called a dunny here, but we had an outside toilet. Uh, those who stood up read, linger not at the Lord's business. <laughs> and those who sat down read, he shall melt thy bowels like wax. <laughs> but I think that was something to do with the loaf of white slice that we couldn't live by over the oven. But although we lived in this world of print, in the world of forbidden books, my mother herself loved to read murder mysteries because she was a hypocrite like the rest of us. So I was sent to the Accrington Public Library to fetch back the murder mysteries, which of course exposed me to the very thing that I was not to be exposed to, the books. She didn't want the books to fall into my hands. It never occurred to her that I might fall into the books and put myself there for safekeeping. So when I was, went into the library, there was a great shelf at the back which said English literature in prose, A to Z, because these were the glory days of libraries. This was a Carnegie library um, where working class people were meant to better themselves through literature and learning. And I looked and I thought, English literature in prose, A to Z, what shall I do? And I thought, well, I'll start at A. So I began to work my way through. And at the beginning, it's good because you get Austin, the Brontes, Comrade, Elliot. You know, when I got to Nabokov, things were a little bit more difficult for me. You know, I struggled. But I was going along and I was finding what books really were and finding that this was a home for me. And I started to buy books with my money from working on the markets and smuggle them into the house. Now, anybody here who's got a single bed standard size and a collection of paperback standard size will know that you can fit 74 per layer under the mattress. <laughs> so that's what I did. And gradually, my bed began to rise visibly. <laughs> I was like the princess in the pea. And I was sleeping closer to the ceiling than to the floor. Now, even if my mother, the late Mrs. Winton, had not been a suspicious-minded woman, you know, had not been her own personal private KGB, she would have noticed this, and she came round one night with her flashlight. We did have electricity, but at night she liked to go around with a flashlight. You know, it was a sort of Hitchcock film noir we were living in. So she, she came upstairs with the flashlight, flash, flash. And then she noticed, first of all, that I was a long way up. And secondly, that there was something sticking out. So she pulled the corner of the book, which was terrible because it was D.H. Lawrence, Women in Love. 
and she knew that Lawrence was a Satanist and a pervert. And all the, I came tumbling off the bed. All the books came off after me. She began throwing them all over the floor. The dog came up barking. My dad, who'd been on nights, came in his pajamas, shouted out. She opened the window of the little room, started to throw all of the books out into the backyard. And then she went down and she took the kerosene stove and she set fire to them. And she burned them all. And I'll never forget that, that cold Saturnian January night and this auto de fe, this bonfire of books, all the ones that I covered in sticky white plastic and put under the bed because they were my life, and they're gone. And I thought two things. I realized that whatever is outside of you can be taken away. And only what's inside of you is really yours. You know, we live in an uncertain world. Uh, for many people, everything has been destroyed and taken away. So what's on the inside? And what can we hold on to? And I thought, I'll start memorizing text. And then she won't know. If the library's inside me, she can't get it. It'll be mine. I'll be able to keep it. But also, as I was looking at these fragments and blowing around the yard on that terrible night, I, think I realized that there was something else that I could do, and that was the thing that changed my life forever. And I thought, fuck it, I can write my own. <laughs> and I do have 59 seconds left. But <laughs> <laughs> so if anybody tells you that literature is a luxury, that it's not the center of life, that you don't need it, that it's something that you do when you've done everything else, when you don't have to have time for the real things in the world. Remember, none of that's true, because it is at the heart of who we are. And Anne was saying earlier that it makes us better people, better parents, better lovers, better friends, better citizens. It allows us to engage with the world in a way that wouldn't be possible otherwise. We want to live in an altered state. We want to live in the place that books allow. And that's why you're here tonight, and that's why we're here. And this is our gift to each other, that we know that this is reality, that this is truth. And it's not all about politics, and it's not all, all about money. It's about the place that we make in our imaginations, because the imagination is where everything begins. Thank you. Yeah. Our 2016 Auckland Writers Festival podcast series is proudly powered by Spark. You can find a range of other talks, interviews, and discussions on iTunes, on SoundCloud, or on our website, writersfestival.co.nz.